Hey, Rachel, I've been thinking about Freedom Force. Well, that's certainly one way to spend an afternoon, Miles. What do you think they do on their downtime? I mean, the X-Men have other interests or day jobs or whatever, but we don't see that much of Freedom Force when they're not at work. Are they just 24-7 supervillains? And they're not even particularly good ones, so you've got to figure they'd have backup skills, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, Avalanche actually quit crime completely to open a bar in San Francisco. Nice. Did it work out? Until he was kidnapped by the Red Skull, lobotomized, and forced to kill himself to save New York. Ooh, ouch. What about the rest? Let's see, there's Blob. Blob's pretty committed to supervillainy, but he's gone back to the circus on and off, and he was briefly a reality TV star after M-Day. Spiral? Spiral has, like, six jobs at any given time. It's just that they generally involve things like warping the space-time continuum and giving people evil robot eyes. Fair enough. What about Pyro? Oh, Pyro's done a ton of stuff. Before he fell in with the Brotherhood, he was mostly a journalist and war correspondent. And even as a supervillain, I think he was the only member of the Brotherhood or Freedom Force to keep a consistent second job. So what's a firebending supervillain do on his days off? Writes toward gothic romance novels. What?! I'm Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 60th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And so right now, we are in a very strange era of X-Men. It feels sort of uh, sort of liminal, sort of on the edge of everything. Yeah, I mean, X-Men doesn't really have a cohesive team identity right now in ways that they have previously. They're still this, nominally the central title of the line, but let's see, New Mutants is the boarding school coming-of-age book, and X-Factor is largely taken over as the costumed superhero book, and X-Men is kind of floating in the middle trying to find their place. Right, and to a degree that makes sense. I mean, Charles Xavier is gone from Earth at this point, and Magneto is running the school, but he's not really interacting with the X-Men, who themselves have had a number of leadership changes over the last couple of years. Well, the X-Men themselves aren't even at the school at this point. They're actually in San Francisco in the aftermath of Secret Wars 2. But more pertinently, whether and to what extent their team kind of remains in flux. It strikes me a lot of the stories during this era are single character centric. You know, a lot of the things that I think of as the iconic definitive issues, the Barry Windsor Smith stuff like Life Death, like that Wolverine story, all of the Rachel Summers stuff. Those aren't really team stories. They aren't really superhero stories, even in the ways that we tend to think of them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So let's talk about a little bit of what has led up to this point. As you mentioned, Charles Xavier is at this point no longer on Earth. He's traveling around with the Starjammers and Lalandra. The X-Men at this point consist of Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Rogue, and Phoenix. That's Phoenix 2, Rachel Summers, the alternate universe, Days of Future Past kid of Scott and Jean Grey as Phoenix since they just merged in that timeline. So, of those characters, Storm is leading the team. She has been for a while since Cyclops left. She is powerless after losing her powers a long time ago. Recently, in the wrap-up to Secret Wars 2, we saw Phoenix cross kind of a major event horizon. She decided to either request and then take, or in some cases straight up steal the life forces of the entire team to go off and end the universe to stop the Beyonder. Ultimately, Storm talked her out of that. But it's a decision whose repercussions haven't been addressed in continuity yet, and they're going to come into play pretty hard in the next few issues. Big time. Now, as far as those single-character stories you were mentioning, Rachel, we recently saw Wolverine fight Lady Deathstrike and almost get killed. He's still severely injured. That was one of the Barry Windsor Smith issues that we referenced previously. We've also seen Nightcrawler go off on his own and generally sort of shake off the grim dark that defines the X-Men of this era. To go have ridiculous swashbuckly adventures fighting Arcade and rescuing a woman named Judith Rassendel who turned out to be the lost queen of an obscure European country. 
as happens when you're Nightcrawler. So that's what's going on as far as heroes. Now, as far as villains, we have a few groups running around, and I wouldn't call any of them like major iconic villains of the X-Men, or at least not uh, major iconic incarnations of those villains. Right, because Freedom Force, which is the first group we're going to see them fight, is actually a pretty iconic group as the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's pretty much the same lineup plus Spider-Woman and Spiral. Yeah, now that they're Freedom Force, they're working for the government, sort of taking in mutant criminals, which the X-Men absolutely count as. Right, for Val Cooper, who's sort of the Walter Skinner of the Marvel Universe. Pretty much, yeah. We've also got Nimrod, who is a shape-shifting super sentinel from the Earth-811 Days of Future Past Future. He fell back through time as a result of the Kulan Gath nonsense, when an ancient sorcerer transformed New York into an age undreamed of as a complicated revenge play against Spider-Man. You can hear that covered at more length in the episode Mordenkainen's Marvelous Mutants, whose number escapes me at the moment, but it's up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, we have the Hellfire Club. They've been around for a while, but currently what they're defined by is a power struggle between their Black King, Sebastian Shaw, who we met from day one with them, and Selene, the immortal psychic vampire that first appeared in the Nova Roma arc of New Mutants and is now trying to wrest control from Shaw. And Selene in particular has coalesced as an arch nemesis to two of the younger X-Men. Magma, who's a member of the New Mutants, as Miles mentioned, Selene was a major antagonist in the Nova Roma arc, and Rachel Summers, Phoenix, the two of them actually teamed up and tried to kill her on the verge of the whole age undreamed of mess. Right. So, uh, that is the tableau of terrible things that we find ourselves in as uh, this arc starts. With Uncanny X-Men number 206, freedom is a four-letter word. No, it's not. Chris Claremont, you're very good with words, but your spelling leaves a bit to be desired. There are definitely more than four letters there. I mean, I'm looking at this written out, and no... No, it is not. I kind of feel like you could have a better title with freedom is a force letter word because then it remains both inaccurate and incomprehensible. And I enjoy that. I mean, free is a four letter word. Well, there you go. So at this point, this is in the aftermath of the San Francisco stuff with the Beyonder, right? Right. And the X-Men fought the Beyonder in San Francisco. And then they just sort of decided to stick around and help with rebuilding. They are currently crashing with Jessica Drew, the original Spider-Woman, now depowered and working as a private investigator, and her roommate and partner, Lindsay McCabe. And they are just crashing in their apartment, which strikes me as a little bit terrible because, I mean, like, we've had friends crash with us for a long time, but generally they don't come with an entire superhero team. Right. It's like, hey, I'm down on my luck. I just need to stay in your couch until I get a job. Oh, and also, here are people from all around the world with superpowers and traumatic backstories. Uh, do you have some extra cops? for them or something yeah this has to be a really big apartment too because a bunch of people have their own rooms like they're not just camped out in the living room i think it's kind of like you know friends or seinfeld or whatever where these characters really would have no reason to be able to afford their apartments but there they are and in san francisco at this point for this group we've got a couple other supporting characters who are going to pop up over this issue there's david ishima who's their landlord and he's a friend of Jessica and Lindsay's. He is mostly notable for his hella intense fashion choices. Hey, if you got it, flaunt it. I mean, that V-neck is intense. That's a capital V-neck. It is, I assume, just based on the saturation. And this is, I want to talk about the coloring in these issues because there is something about this particular run where everything is like super bright jewel tones. Yeah, and some of the coloring choices are just very confusing. So, you know, at one point we're going to see Callisto later on and she's just got this like bright neon orange tunic over her black leather. Doesn't really seem her style, but there she is. I don't know why, and I mean, I I know the color is a a pretty significant factor in it, but I sort of imagine all of the costumes and most of the clothing during this era being made out of, like, super, super shiny polyester costume satin. Oh, man, it would be the glitteriest super era. Well, no, it would be sort of shimmery. It's not, well, I guess some of it could be glittery. No, it's that very sort of flat, rich, intense ridiculousness. Mid-80s. I think we kind of got off track with that a little bit. It's an awesome track. <laughs> anyway, so they are holed up in San Francisco. They are helping with the reconstruction primarily in the aftermath of the Beyonder mess. 
so the X-Men are just sort of hanging out, you know, being all domestic in this apartment. And uh, they get this old postcard from Cyclops and his wife, Madeline Pryor. I guess Magneto decided to finally forward the mail. Yeah, or maybe the U.S. Postal Service got derailed by the Beyonder 2. Who knows? Seems like they're doing well. It's an older postcard. I should point out, I believe that this issue of X-Men is coming out in, in June of 1986. X-Factor would have started in February of that year. So they are most definitely not doing okay. No, no, they are not. You know, I feel like throughout this arc, there's this sort of not even B, but C plot, which is this very much like sitcom farce X-Factor and the X-Men thing going on where the X-Factor will see Magneto walking into the Hellfire Club and be like, oh my god, he's obviously evil. Or one of the X-Men will see a couple of members of X-Factor in association with the ads and be like, oh my god, they've obviously gone evil. And none of them actually talk to each other. Oh, come on, people. Just drop somebody an email. It's going to be fine. Right. So, yeah, they're being all domestic. And um, Rogue's like, hey, we got this postcard. Maybe we should go visit Scott and Madeline. And at that point, Rachel Summers, who's been working on dishes telekinetically, just drops them on the ground and just freaks out. Yeah, man. It's different year, different episode, same song and dance for her. She just cannot come to terms with the timeline split. She can't really come to terms with the stuff with her family. We talked about this in context of Secret Wars, how she basically plays out the same story twice in a row. And in general, she just seems to be stuck in this loop for, you know, years. And it's damned unfortunate because, you know, as soon as she comes to the main timeline many, many months before this, that's her big conflict. And she'll just have these epiphanies and revelations and she'll come to terms with things. And then the next issue, she's all screwed up again. It's like nothing really sticks with her. You know, that kind of feels like the case with the X-Men throughout this era. She's a pretty good illustration of what's not quite working. There's a lot that gets torn down. You know, a lot of people leave the team. A lot of things sort of start to change, but nothing really takes. The old status quo is, is broken down. It's disintegrating, but there's nothing new to take its place. You know, there's upheaval, but not actually change. Mm hmm. Yeah, as this is going on, as Rachel is telekinetically, you know, breaking a lot of stuff, Rogue tries to calm her down and says, hey, so at the beginning of this whole Beyonder mess, I put my ghosts behind me. I got over this whole absorbing Carol Danvers thing. You really need to do the same about your reality and your family. You need to get over this or else it's going to define you forever. Or at least stop smashing shit every time it comes up because it's going to keep coming up and there are only so many dishes in this apartment. Yes, yes, indeed. So, you know, Rachel starts to calm down. In the meantime, Kitty is about to go on what she sees as a date with David Ashima, Jessica Drew's landlord. Well, or at least what she claims is a date. At this point, I'm never quite sure how much of what Kitty does she's doing because she believes it or how much she's doing it just to push Storm's buttons for fun. <laughs> because Storm is totally playing the part of the worried mom here and Kitty's, you know, talking about how she has this hot date. And then it turns out it's, you know, the landlord of the people who they were coming with who had an extra ticket and Jessica couldn't go. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so they're going to go see Lila Cheney, which I'm kind of jealous of because I want to see Lila Cheney. Right? Who doesn't want to see Lila Cheney? After the concert, they're heading back and all of a sudden the street starts rippling like liquid. And it's pretty clear pretty quickly that Freedom Force is attacking not just them, but Jessica Drew's apartment and everyone in it. God damn it, Freedom Force. Seriously, they're super jerks. They are super jerks. They are sort of the definition of lawful evil, I think. They are the people who are like, well, we're working within the confines of the law. We're following the letter of it. We've got an official mandate. Let's tear some shit up. Like we mentioned earlier, Freedom Force kind of came out of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They mostly have the same lineup they did. Spiral is new since then, straight out of the Longshot miniseries. And they also have the second Spider-Woman with them right now, Julia Carpenter. Right. And she made her debut in Secret Wars 1. Honestly, there's very little to say about her. She's a spider woman. Sometimes she's good. Sometimes she's bad. Mostly when she's bad, it's because she's been tricked into it and she feels kind of guilty about it afterwards. Apparently, she plays a pretty significant role in Civil War mm -hmm. or at least gets better developed then. But that's sort of the extent to which she is relevant here. Right. 
So Freedom Force attacks the X-Men, and the uh, fight's not going so well for the X-Men. We see Freedom Force using their uh, powers as a team very effectively for kind of the first time, and that's enough to take the X-Men almost entirely out. Right, the X-Men are good at using teamwork, but one of the things we see here is that they are totally unprepared for villains who do, which is weird, because actually the Brotherhood kind of always did, just in ways that were really reliant on destiny. And so, uh, one thing that I find really weird about this fight, well, okay, two things. One thing I find really weird is Spiral's role in it. So Spiral's still a very new character at this point in continuity. Like, we don't know a lot about her other than that she dances, she uses weird magic stuff, she's got six arms. She used to run with Mojo. Yeah. So at one point, she says to Rachel, Yours is a life rich with time, girl. If I stole it, I could remain young and vital almost forever. Wait, what? That's a new one? That's got nothing to do with any concept Spiral has ever uh, shown before or will ever show again. Well, and she's also got the body shop. Spiral has a lot going on. And I mean, part of it is that at any given time, she exists simultaneously in multiple spiraling time streams. So she's sort of unstuck in the multiverse and in the timeline in ways that I imagine got to kind of mess with someone's head and superpowers. But yeah, Spiral is all over the place. She largely exists to be the cool supervillain that a story calls for. Right. And of course, she'll solidify later once her nature as sort of a a time-displaced Ricochet Rita comes out. But for now, every appearance, different concept. The thing is, I kind of like that. To me, it makes her a lot more interesting. With most supervillains, we see their powers kind of pinned down or at least kept story relevant. Spiral is just weird, and her weirdness and unpredictability, for me at least, really add a lot to the character and then also lend a lot of weight to that eventual reveal that she's really Ricochet Rita. Totally. And so the other weird thing about this fight, Storm's powerless. We the readers have known this for quite a long time. Apparently Freedom Force doesn't know it. Which is weird because Mystique was there when it happened. Yeah. And so the X-Men managed this elaborate hoax using ambient fog and Rachel's telekinesis and stuff to make it look like Storm still has her powers. They try to, but they fail because Spiral calls them out on it. And Freedom Force has won when the San Francisco cops show up and tell them that they need to head back to Washington and get a warrant or they will be promptly arrested because in San Francisco, we do things by the rules, and the X-Men are our bros, and you are not. And this is led by Lieutenant Bree Morrill, who's an old Spider-Woman character uh, that Storm met earlier in the issue when she was, you know, beating up muggers. I know very little about Lieutenant Morrill, but I love her deeply because I have a huge and lingering soft spot for bureaucratic badassitude. <laughs> yep. Like, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of ruined Coulson for me by making him an action hero. That's the thing that I want to see in supporting characters is like kicking ass with paperwork and, you know, folklore. Like Kate Corrigan is my favorite BPRD character forever. She's mine too, actually. Yeah, Freedom Force is like grumble, grumble, fine, but we'll be back. At which point the X-Men realize, you know, we should probably leave town because we're going to get people caught in the crossfire and that's not Well, cool. no, Brie tells them to leave town. She's like, yeah, we like you guys. It's been good having you here. But there seems to be some trouble following you, and we would appreciate it if you'd be good neighbors and, you know, fuck gently off. Right. Now, of course, the X-Men will eventually end up semi-permanently in San Francisco years and years and years and years later when they found Utopia, but that won't be for quite a while. Meanwhile, Rachel Summers decides that she, too, is going to hit a resolution point. She is going to go find Cyclops and Madeline Pryor, and she is going to come clean. But actually, she totally isn't, because what we get instead is her breakdown and subsequent freaking murder. But before that, we do see a uh, a Jane Doe appear Murder. in a hospital, and this Jane Doe is riddled with bullets and almost dead, and we, the readers, recognize her contextually as Madeline Pryor, who disappeared in X-Factor a little while ago. I like that you dropped in recognize her contextually, because one of my notes is I would have no idea who this was if they hadn't cut to her immediately after someone else mentioned Madeline. 
John Romita Jr., who's drawing at this point, doesn't draw very distinctive faces for the most part. That's never really been part of his style. And her hair is colored the wrong color. Again, I, I feel like if it were Paul Smith, Madeline, even colored wrong, I would have immediately recognized her because she's got a very, very distinctive appearance. This could literally be any woman with a sort of strawberry blonde bob. The only way that we know it's Madeline is that her name was mentioned. Even then, I wasn't completely sure. But we'll uh, gradually, as time goes on, figure out who she is. Quick question on that. Is she in San Francisco or is she in Alaska at that point? Because her death is being faked in Alaska roughly concurrent to this. There's going to be another body that Scott later identifies as her that's found outside Anchorage. Uh, She's actually in the San Francisco Memorial Hospital. I guess that's the kind of thing you can pull off when you've got multiple clones floating around. You know, it's handy. I kind of wish I did sometimes. You really don't, though. Being Madeline Pryor is not a happy fate. I suppose that's true, yeah. I guess maybe in the the Secret Wars Inferno series. She seems to be having a lot of fun there. (laughs) And what we also see is Nightcrawler having, you know, finished his adventure with Judith Rassendal, deciding to go back to the X-Men, and he's sort of renewed. He's like, hey, I found my swashbuckly self again. I got my pirate groove back. Let us do this thing. And that takes us to Uncanny X-Men 207 Ghosts, where everything will indeed go to hell and no one's groove will be got back. Yeah, so it's 207, 208, and 209, which is to say the issues leading right up to the Mutant Massacre. They're kind of one solid continual story. You know, the end of one issue goes directly into the beginning of the next. And this mini arc is basically about Rachel Summers kind of losing it and leaving the X-Men. I mentioned, you know, murder. Getting straight up hella super murdered. Getting murdered and then leaving the X-Men in that order because, you know, X-Men. Right. We open with one of my favorite X-Men tropes, which is the throwing the reader into a reality that can't possibly be real, but nonetheless, there it is. This is a smashed up New York. The credits even are on bits of shrapnel and detritus in the rubble below Wolverine, who is standing claws out and is obviously after Phoenix. Yeah, so it quickly cuts to Rachel Summers, and she doesn't know what's going on. She just knows she's being hunted. Uh, This is definitely her dark future that she came from, the days of future past future. And she starts to even question, especially as she sees herself in a mirror in her hound outfit. That was when she was forced, when she was much younger, to track down mutants. She starts to wonder, wait a minute, did I even ever really go back to the past to try to fix it? Or was that just all a dream? Is this the only reality that I've ever really been in? It's that awesome, you know, semi-lucid nightmare state where you're aware that you're dreaming but still incapable of waking up. Yeah. So she continues fleeing Wolverine. She doesn't know why he's hunting her, but eventually he does catch her and stabs her fatally. And as she wakes up in the present, I love the narration here, and her first thoughts are full of bitter regret, for in her heart of hearts, a still small voice snarls, you're better off dead. This is going to be a motif that we see recur over and over throughout this episode, series of dreams of sort of alternate timelines in which she's running from Wolverine and ultimately in every single one of those he confronts and kills her. Yeah. As she wakes up here, she sees herself again in a mirror and just yells out, I deny you, smashing the mirror. Well, she sees specifically her face with the the hound tattoos. Mm-hmm. That's what she's reacting to. Colossus and, and uh, Kitty come running in saying, hey, what's going on? And Kitty actually starts to chide Rachel, which gives us our context of what's going on, which is they're in the Morlock tunnels. Right. They are hiding out after being attacked by Freedom Force in San Francisco. They've come back to New York and they're shacking up with the Morlocks. These are, for those of you who were not around for those episodes, renegade mutants who live in the sewers of New York, deliberately separate from society. And Kitty's like, hey, Rachel, so that mirror you just smashed is like somebody's prized possession. Come on, we're guests of these people. What's going on? 
Yeah, like seriously, you know, we talked about how Selena's the worst party crasher, and I feel like she might kind of have nothing on Rachel Summers except for intentions, <laughs> because Rachel basically busts through walls and smashes dishes and mirrors and, you know, has a bad day and all of the breakables are gone. Yeah. And so Rachel's a little bit sheepish as Colossus and Shadowcat leave and tries to telekinetically put the mirror back together. And there's this great, great image of all the pieces of glass having been assembled, but they're still fragmented. And so Rachel's looking into it and you see her face almost kaleidoscope like, you know, not whole. And then she just lets the pieces of glass drop. And what we find out at that point is that her dreams haven't just been affecting the scenery. She has been basically dragging Wolverine into them, too. And that's especially a problem because Wolverine is still in really rough shape. He got pretty badly torn up in a fight with Lady Deathstrike a few issues ago, and he's still recuperating, which actually, as it turns out, is part of why they're in the Morlock tunnels, other than hiding from Freedom Force. Right, because one of the Morlocks is one they call Healer, who, as near as we can tell, is a D&D wizard who lives in the sewers and casts, you know, like, cure moderate wounds and raise dead. So the X-Men all meet up. That includes Rachel Summers, who's now in a truly badass set of Morlock, you know, sewer bondage gear. Yeah, all the X-Men seem to be kind of dressing to match their settings at this point. You see Rogue, you know, adopting more spiky stuff. Kitty's got these great sort of studded gauntlets incorporated in her costume, sort of a a when in the sewers, when in Rome principle. (laughs) Exactly. When the Morlock tunnels, Morlock like a Morlock. And Rachel realizes quickly that all of their minds are close to her, and they're kind of giving her the cold shoulder. And uh, they're completely honest about the fact that that's because she took many of their essences against their will when she was fighting the Beyonder. And that was this huge invasion of psychic privacy and, and just psychic sovereignty in general. And I should say, you know, talking about this, looking at the outline, I'm going back through it and, and having trouble following it because it feels really disjointed. And the truth is that's because the issue is really disjointed, too, that we have a lot of scenes that suddenly end with a massive scene shifter with Rachel waking up. Because remember, the whole thing is intercut with these dreams about Wolverine killing her. And I think that works really well in this issue because we see that Rachel is just losing her grip. I mean, she's going from things that are clearly happening to things that are clearly not. And even when she recognizes those dreams as dreams, she doesn't remember the transitions between waking life and sleeping life. Yeah, she is coming further and further unhinged and further and further detached from reality. And one of the things that I think is interesting in this arc is it's very unclear to what extent she may be pulling Wolverine with her. Because the things he's going to do in the next few issues are, I think... Things that are somewhat out of character and at least significantly more extreme than I would expect of him during this period. Right. And I mean, that's actually something that is mentioned at one point is that the X-Men start to wonder whether their actions are even their own or if Rachel is influencing them without even realizing that she is. And I mean, right now, like her next dream is in feudal Japan and she realizes very quickly, I'm pulling this out of Wolverine's memories, not mine. What is going on here? She theorizes that it might be because she had tried to use her powers to amplify his healing factor. And of course, there was the whole merging everyone's minds together to fight the Beyonder. But she really doesn't know what's going on. Right. And even in the real world, she's waking up in places she has no memory of being. I think she wakes up at one point in a subway with no idea how she got there. And so the transitions back from the dreams are as surreal and as abrupt as the transitions into them to the point where by the end of this issue, it becomes very clear that she's no longer really confident what's real and what's not. Yeah. After the last of these dreams, in which she actually kills Wolverine rather than the other way around, she wakes up at a part of the city that she first arrived in when she came there from Days of Future Past. And that was near this nightclub where this dude named Nicholas Damiano sort of kindly took her in and helped get her cleaned up and was awesome. And he was then killed by Celine, who was hunting Rachel. Right. She specifically, I think, ends up in the ruins of his apartment building. She decides that she's going to do the one thing that she knows is the right thing to do. She's going to go hunt down and kill Celine. Because we all know how well that ended last time she tried to do it. Yeah, we've talked about how Rachel Summers seems to have these plot points she keeps coming back to that she can't really progress past. 
And this is something that she has almost exactly tried to do before, infiltrate the Hellfire Club and assassinate Celine. You know, it didn't occur to me before, but the logic loops that she's caught in remind me so much of traditional ghost stories. I can kind of see that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like, I just thought of that as, as you were talking about that right now. But yeah, she's got these specific fixations that she can't resolve and she just keeps on going back and reenacting and reenacting and reenacting. And I mean, the ghost metaphor is certainly one that's used multiple times in the story. This issue itself is called Ghosts. And in fact, the trade paperback that this whole era is collected in is also called Ghosts. So this particular ghost story takes place at the Hellfire Club, though, and is therefore a hilarious ghost story. Because as everyone knows, the proper way to break into the Hellfire Club involves mind control and maid uniforms. Yes, and that's exactly how Rachel gets in. She basically attacks Celine in her sleep. Most of the rest of the inner circle is out of the Hellfire in Club Celine's at this point. In sleep, we should qualify, because this isn't one of those issues where we have to specify that. <laughs> I guess that's true, yeah. And... She realizes as she's been fighting, as she's, you know, plotting this vengeance against Celine, that she can't remember Damiano's name. And in the fight with Celine, it comes up that Celine does. And this really throws Rachel. To be fair, Celine remembers his name because she's absorbed his essence. You know, it's fundamentally part of her powers that she absorbs the memories and psyches of everyone she kills. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of cheating here. It's not <laughs> like she's got a scrapbook. I suppose that's true. Although now I'm just imagining Celine scrapbooking amid like, you know, the desiccated corpses of all of her victims. We're going to come back to this. We are going to come back to this so hard because Hellfire Club Crafts Night is definitely going to be a theme next issue. <laughs> yes, it is. But as all this is going on, the lights in the Hellfire Club building go off, the fire alarm is tripped, and a figure slips in silently eventually coming into Celine's room, and that's Wolverine. And I actually just want to go through this page, through the dialogue on it, because this is a climactic scene right here. Okay, so we should say at this point, uh, Rachel has Celine entrapped. I think she's buried partway in the floor, and she is about to kill her. And Wolverine has shown up to stop her. Justify it. Rationalize it. However you like. It's still wrong. It isn't worthy of you, as Rachel or Phoenix. And it sure as blazes isn't worthy of an X-Man. I don't care. You should. You better. We call ourselves heroes, girl. That means we have to stand for something, no matter how hard or how much it hurts. We represent the dream. My, My dreams are nightmares. Not more, Goth. We have to play by the rules. Phoenix makes her own. This is your last warning. I won't ask again. Come away, Rachel. Please. And know that people will die because I did? I know enough ghosts. There are too many ghosts. I won't allow more. The only way to stop me, Logan, is to kill me. And the last panel of the issue just says, snicked. So that happened. So what I like about this scene, I mean, I don't like this scene in that it's something horrible that happens to a character I care about. But what I like about the way it's done is that the dialogue makes Wolverine seem very sympathetic and right. And what actually happens completely turns that around. So my read of this scene is, I think, somewhat different from yours based on our conversations about it. Because you talked about it being about Wolverine really examining what he saw as the role of the X-Men and lines that he couldn't allow other people to cross. I don't see this as Wolverine's choice at all. I think this is less Rachel going to kill Celine than Rachel setting up an endgame where Wolverine has to kill her, that she's basically trying to commit suicide by Wolverine. Gotcha. Maybe so not deliberately, maybe not consciously, but that she's been, she's basically pulled him into this weird dream loop too, and he's playing the role that she's set for him way more than he's actually playing himself. See, that could be, but I don't know, because later on, Wolverine, I mean, in the very next scene, at the very beginning of the next issue, he's justifying himself to the X-Men, and he seems completely confident that he did what was necessary. And to me, what that says is he's become so fixated, so obsessed with the idea of the X-Men as this force that will make him less of an animal, 
that he's inflicting that on other people, even if it kills them. Well, on one hand, this is something that we're going to see Wolverine do again a few times over the years, not with Rachel in particular, but with other characters. So it's definitely something he's got the capacity for. But in this case, I think the shape of that confrontation has to be at least her influence. I agree that she's preying on or that it's playing on directions he was already headed and sentiments that he was already, you know, clinging to fairly closely. But I don't think it was a unilateral action. And I think the text supports that reading because in the dreams, I mean, their memories are getting mixed up. There are elements from both of their pasts being pulled in. It's unclear who's being sucked into whose psyche. And I don't think Wolverine is acting unilaterally. Whether or not he's acting, you know, with his own will or volition and how significant a part of it it is, is unclear. But I really, really think that what's going on in the way that scene plays out is not just about him making a choice. You know, that does make for a more interesting read on the scene. So yeah, I'll definitely go for that. But I mean, reading this, this is some shocking shit right here. I mean, we are seeing one of the main characters attempt to kill another of the main characters, like a teammate. You know, attempt to hell that he doesn't kill her is entirely an accident. I mean, when we next see her, she is literally telekinetically holding her heart and lungs together. If she gets exhausted enough or if she falls asleep, she'll die. Yeah. And so this is some dark stuff. I mean, we talk about this being the grimdark era of the 80s for X-Men. And to be fair, it's one of many, but damn. And so, yeah, the issue opens. I mean, we saw last issue, the X-Men confronting Rachel about what she did. And now we see them confronting Wolverine. Like, none of them are okay with this, understandably. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be mad at her and say, okay, you have to stop smashing shit. You have to deal with your issues. Stabbing is kind of an escalation. (laughs) Very slightly. And so Storm's like, you know what? We can have this philosophical conversation later. What we need to do right now is save Rachel. She's probably out there and dying. And so she takes some of the Morlocks and the X-Men to go look. She is indeed. She is in Central Park, in fact, where she will stumble across two more victims of Celine. Yeah. And uh, we actually see a cutaway of Celine stopping a mugging and killing the mugger and then killing the victim as well. And that's what Rachel stumbles across, these two kind of desiccated corpses that are barely even there at all. It's mostly just piles of clothing. And she is furious. She's like, all right, Wolverine, is this what you wanted? Is this why you tried to kill me so that Celine could murder more innocent people? It's complicated, bub. And Felix. so... Yeah, Rachel just reaches across the entire city, finds Wolverine across town in a subway tunnel, picks him up with the Phoenix Force, and slams him into the path of an oncoming train. Which, to be fair, is kind of justified under the circumstances. I mean, to what extent throwing someone in front of an oncoming train ever really is. I feel worse for the train than I do for Wolverine. He'll be okay. Yeah, well, thankfully, Shadowcat phases him out of the way. But yeah, while that's all going on, we also see yet another antagonist, because things weren't bad enough to begin with, that being Nimrod searching around for this power signature, this Omega-level power signature, which I believe is the first time we hear that term, that is Rachel Summers. Yeah, I'm not certain for sure, but I don't remember a previous occurrence. I'm sure someone will find one, and um, actually us, and we will look forward to that correction and confirmation. But um, yeah, this is the first that we at least recall. Now, Nimrod is at this point living with the guy who found him. He's got a human form and a human disguise, and he's still kind of trying to figure out what he is. He knows his role. He knows that he's supposed to be hunting mutants. He's supposed to be reinforcing law and social order. But he's having feelings for the first time, and it's kind of throwing him off. Yeah, specifically, he's evolved into sort of this friendly uncle figure for the son of the guy that has taken him in. And so, yeah, it's it's a cool contrast seeing Nimrod as a really nice dude and then a merciless mutant-killing robot. 
But there's another set of players in the game, too, and those are the Hellfire Club, because as you'll recall, when Wolverine attacked Rachel, she was in the process of taking down Selene, the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, and Selene convinces the rest of the Lord's Cardinal that they have got to hunt this kid down. They're reluctant to go after the X-Men because they have at this point sort of a tentative truce based on actually the last time Rachel tried to kill Selene and the X-Men came in and stopped her. But Selene makes the case and makes a pretty good case that, yeah, this is the second time she's broken into their inner sanctum and tried to kill someone. Maybe we should at least make sure this kid's out of the picture. So at this point, we have the X-Men, the Hellfire Club, and Nimrod all trying to find, all converging on the almost fatally stabbed Rachel Summers who is just getting more and more overwhelmed by her telepathy being out of control as she starts to bleed out. There are entire panels just filled with giant sound effects that are words that slowly shrink down to speech bubbles covering most of a vaguely drawn background, and then a normally drawn background, but with just speech bubbles with tiny, tiny letters, just sentences that just continue and continue in a way that I think really works for getting across just what kind of background radio static, what kind of overwhelming chatter that telepathy would be if you didn't totally have a lock on it. I think I would think it was more effective if it weren't so heavily clustered in the margins of the panels, but I will accede to your read of that. I will say that of all of the forces going after Rachel, they may be roughly equal in battles, but they are not remotely equal in costume, and that is because the Lord's Cardinal have decided to go superhero. Okay, so let's talk about this, because this has been a very serious, very dark arc so far, and then these guys show up like it's Halloween at the last minute. Oh man, so the the Hellfire Club, the members of the Hellfire Club, generally the ladies wear fancy lingerie, and the gentlemen dress in roughly anachronistic 18th century formal wear. Tonight, on the other hand... They've pulled out all the stops, and the thing with these costumes is they aren't even very good. Like, you'd expect them to have something sort of distinguished, you know, fancy domino masks, something like that. No, like, these look like the members of the Hellfire Club sat down and were like, you guys, let's make superhero costumes. Someone's got a glue gun and someone found a stash of, like, craft satin. And they worked really hard on these. So we've got Sebastian Shaw wearing, like, a green under tunic and a purple doublet, looking, again, very, very proud of himself. Harry Leland is just kind of spectacular. Harry Leland's costume is amazing. He's got like this blue v-neck collared tunic, and he's got this giant blue cape and big like flared gloves and boots, but what really, really makes it work is the green Ninja Turtle style eyehole cutout mask he's wearing on top of this. It's like, Harry Leland, who let you out like that? Well, no, it looks like they put these together from pieces from a five-year-old's costume bin. And then there's Tessa, who's wearing, like, her normal clothing, but just has a handkerchief pulled up over the lower half of her face. And I'm imagining these conversations like, Tessa, come on, we talked about this, we were all going to make costumes, we worked really hard on yours, where's your costume? You have to wear a costume, Tessa. And Tessa's like, no, guys, you're not going to wear this out, are you? And they're like, we have to, come on, you have to have a disguise, otherwise people will know. And she'll be like, you know, these are disguises. We don't dress like this normally, like, we just dress like this in the inner sanctum. They're like, no, no, but we're going to be heroes. You don't have a costume. She's like, fine, just give me your damn handkerchief, okay? See, I just see Tessa's handkerchief as an embarrassment mask. She's just like, oh god, nobody can recognize me around these people, this is the worst. The inner sanctum is just all, like, glue sticks and pipe cleaners scattered around. Right, the, the various, uh, you know, maids and butlers are like, oh, geez, they did it again. Yeah, Celine was going to make one, but she um, ended up spending too much time on her victim scrapbook. <laughs> exactly, so hey, she's just in the usual bondage gear thing. And we also do see another member who's the Black Rook, which is Celine's assistant, Friedrich von Rome. And at this point, she sort of turns him into a werewolf? I mean, he doesn't physically transform, but he gets all, like, bestial and, and hunty. And uh, her, her line with that is, the moment has come to demonstrate the hereditary talent of my high priests. 
which implies to me that she's been selectively breeding high priests so that they can get kind of wolfy when she snaps her fingers. He doesn't turn into a werewolf, though. Like, he just starts kind of acting like one, and he's not even very good at it. So maybe it's not a hereditary talent so much as a thing that she just told him was part of the job description. I like the idea that a lot of Celine's religion is actually an elaborate practical joke. <laughs> she's just been trolling humanity for thousands of years. I mean, that she she has anyway. Like, she really, really has. I guess that's true. Celine is the worst, but I, the stupider her plots get, the more I like her. Mm-hmm, I'll because agree with that. Because if you're nearly omnipotent, why wouldn't you do shit like that? <laughs> so, anyway, uh, we have this, this moment of perhaps unintentional levity as the Hellfire Club shows that their fashion sense has just disintegrated completely. But then it's back to the dark arc that this whole thing is, because, again, Rachel Summers bleeding out in a park, everybody trying to find her, one team to save her, two uh, organizations to kill her, and the X-Men and the Hellfire Club fight, and once again, the X-Men are kind of getting their asses kicked. Nimrod shows up and kicks everyone's asses. I mean, issue 209 starts with him, what, throwing Sebastian Shaw into space? Yes, using some kind of gravity science something something. Of course he does. Yeah, I mean, there's just this carnage going on in Central Park. Right, the X-Men and the Hellfire Club have put aside their differences to fight Nimrod because he's clearly going to kill them all. Harry Leland, in the middle of this fight, has a massive heart attack. As he's trying to use his mass-based powers to take down Nimrod, which actually is proving kind of effective. No, no, Miles, his costume was so bad that it killed him. I think you may be right. I feel okay about that. But as this is going on, Rachel is just thinking to herself, like, okay, the X-Men seem to be here to help me, but can I really trust them? After what they did, after they abandoned me when I needed them the most, after Wolverine legitimately tried to kill me. And they're clearly there with Wolverine. I mean, he is right there with them. And so she keeps going back and forth, and of course she's getting weaker and weaker as this is all going on, because while she's trying to hold her body together with her powers, as she's in more pain and she loses more blood, it's working less well. She is absolutely dying. Fortunately... Someone's there to rescue her, and that someone is a mysterious stranger with white hair and a cloak who invites her to something called a body shop, where she can leave her old identity and face and life behind and become anything. And I love the way this starts, because Rachel's having all these doubts, and then all of a sudden she hears music, and she sees colored lights coming from the nearby Delacorte Theater, and so she heads in, you know, just staggering in, dripping blood as she goes, and this woman talks to her, and she's just like, Hey, come on in. You're very welcome. You want to be a new you? Do you want to leave everything behind? I can help. It's a weird sequence, and I actually, I love this, because you brought up the question of why Rachel goes along with this. And we're talking about someone who's been running largely on dream logic for the last while. This is honestly not that much weirder. Especially This, this when- fits with the strange sort of almost uh, conveyor belt track that her life's been following. Yes, especially when you consider that She's, you know, at death's door and her brain just isn't working right right now. And so she follows this white haired woman who, you know, I mean, we as readers have seen the body shop before. That's where Lady Deathstrike became a cyborg run by Spiral. So it's very clear that this woman is, in fact, Spiral. But as the comic cuts back and forth between Freedom Force and the X-Men and Nimrod all fighting, and Rachel just sort of like staggering along behind Spiral into this increasingly surreal, like neon-colored, unreal background. Yeah, it reminds me very much of a funhouse, of sort of a hall of mirrors of all the selves and faces she could have been and can yet be. Yeah, and all these past selves are just being left behind in mirrors. Again, we have this mirror motif from before. Well, and these bright neon, almost carnival lights throughout. Yeah, And so, just as the X-Men and the Hellfire Club finally do defeat Nimrod, Harry Leland uses, you know, the last of his life 
to crash Sebastian Shaw from space back into Nimrod. Shaw is fine, of course, because, you know, yeah. Shaw. Um, and so Harry Leland dies. Friedrich von Rome has been disintegrated by Nimrod and is dead himself. Uh, Nimrod teleports away right before he would have been destroyed, but he'll be gone for the next three years. I think we'll, we'll next see him come back when the X-Men are in Australia and he'll show up as the new Master Mold. Right. Um, and so this battle finally, finally ends with relatively heavy losses. I mean, we just saw two recurring characters die, but Rachel's nowhere in sight because she, at this point, is just dancing along behind Spiral, her wounds healed, her identity almost entirely gone. She sees a vision of the X-Men toward the end of this dance and just looks at them and says, No, that's over. That's done. And she follows Spiral off, and we will next see her about 18 months from now when she joins up with Excalibur. Right. And so, thus ends the weird, weird saga of Rachel Summers' involvement with the X-Men for many, many years. And I kind of want to talk about this, because Rachel was really the central figure of the X-Men for uh, probably a little over a year, and it's such a strange run. Well, the central figure story-wise, definitely not the central figure in terms of organization or team. She was the most powerful member of the team by far, but she was a character who was never really in control, and who... While she had a lot invested in the X-Men, very, very much had her own agenda, deliberate or otherwise. Yeah, and so the book has really felt like it's been floundering over this time, I think partially because Chris Claremont, I mean, he created Rachel Summers, he's a phenomenal writer in general, but I don't think he, during this era, really found what he wanted to do with her. Yeah, as with the X-Men in general, you've got a great character, a really interesting character, who's the subject of a lot of focus, but never really quite finds her footing story-wise, never really gets to have a complete arc. And honestly, I mean, I feel like this is the closest she's going to come for a fairly long time, obviously, because she's not in the books for a while. But I really, I think the decision to write her out of the book at this point was a very, very good one. She's a character I like, but she is one who narratively, by virtue of the combination of how powerful she was and how stuck she was, was holding the team and the series back. Yeah. Now that said, even if the book is better without Rachel being a main cast member going forward, this is a hell of an exit. I mean, this storyline isn't really one of the most remembered ones. It has been collected in trade, like I said. Um, but aside from that, you know, not a lot of people go like, oh, right, that one where, where Wolverine stabs Rachel. That's one of the classics. But honestly, it's a, it's a really strong story. It really gets across what did and didn't work about Rachel and makes it memorable as she leaves. So with that out of the way, you've got questions. Speaking of Summer's Kids, Look at Z asks on Tumblr, Do either of you have a favorite among the many future, alternate future, time travely Summer's children? I thought mine was Rachel until I was reading X Factor and suddenly learned about Ruby. What gives Summer slash Gray slash Frost slash prior children such staying power? Why don't more X families have grown up alternate future kids running around? So I think as far as staying power, a lot of that is just simply the fact that the Summer's Gray family has been a family for a very, very long time in the Marvel Universe. And they will ret have been retconned to have been a family for even longer. Yeah. When you then throw in the fact that we had Rachel Summers written into the book as an alternate future daughter, and we had uh, Cyclops and Madeline Pryor actually have a kid of their own, who later ends up turning out to be a time-traveling warrior... At that point, you know, that genie is very much out of the bottle, and it's really easy for people to just throw in more and more and more alternate reality Summer's Grey kids. Yeah, I will say there are a lot of alternate reality Dark Home kids, too. There may actually be as many, if not more. It's just that they don't all tend to have the same last name or set of last names. Yeah, but this is, of course, factoring in, you know, Cyclops and Emma Frost having children in some universes. 
Havoc and various people having kids. Uh, Adam X is technically a part of this discussion, I would like to point out. Well, dubiously, he was posited as a Summers kid, but he's not one. (laughs) But yeah, actually, that's a question. When you say Summers kids, do you count Havoc's alternate timeline kids? Because he's got several as well. I think you could. But as far as favorites, okay, so as a character, Rachel Summers is probably my favorite. Ruby is really cool, but we just don't see enough of her. Uh, She's in the future imperfect timeline. I would say as specifically a Summers kid, though, my favorite is actually Cable. The character started out just ridiculous and dumb, but as his backstory was expanded upon, uh, there was really a lot of story fodder there that was put in for his relationship with especially his father Cyclops, and having a father running around with his much older alternate timeline son who he had to give up as a baby in the past, it's so weird and it's so X-Men and it's so fascinating. Yeah, I will say what Scott, Gene, and Nathan's dynamic eventually grows into is one of my favorite weird, like organically built families in the X universe. So yeah, I really like Cable for the same reasons. And actually, for the same set of reasons, but more so, I'm going to say my favorite Summer's Kid is from the next generation. My favorite Summer's Kid is Hope. Right. She's not biologically a Summer's Kid, but Cable straight up raises her. Right. And her last name is Summer's, so I'm going to say she counts. She's grown up in multiple dark future timelines. You know, she's got the basic set of characteristics, even if she doesn't have the genetics. And again, the same things that make Cable's relationship with Scott and Jean so interesting and so poignant and so well played out over the years, I think reverberate through to Hope in really fascinating ways in terms of Cable as a parent and even more so during the Utopia era after she first comes back in terms of her relationship to Cyclops and the two of them navigating very, very weird respective roles and respective relationships to growing up functionally in different worlds and contexts, but as very sort of obligation and destiny driven individuals and kind of as as child soldiers and sort of how they navigate that relative to one another and their relationship once she's, you know, closer to grown up and back with the X-Men. And also, I think she's just a really, really great character, but she's a character who exists and is those things very much in context to of Cable. So can I say that Cable and Hope are collectively my favorite Summer's kids? Yeah, yeah, it's our podcast. I get two answers. So mote it be. Damn straight. So yeah, Cable and Hope. All right. So Tattooed Buddhas asks on Tumblr, I just discovered Lila Cheney via Captain Marvel number nine, and it's got me thinking about music and the X-verses. Are there any particular artists you guys associate with Dazzler, Lila, or other mutant musicians that I should be aware of? Are you aware of anyone writing songs for them? I refuse to believe it hasn't been done, but I'm having trouble finding any. How about music in general that you associate with X-Men or specific characters? Okay, so I always feel silly answering these because my answer to any question with what music do you associate with any given member of the X-Men is basically um, my friend L. Collins, who, who hosts Intuit, is a huge music buff and puts together these fantastic X-Men mixtapes that are usually character-themed. And because this is very much Elle's world and very much not mine, like I am one of those people who listens primarily to popular music that other people give me, this is why, you know, the Cyclops soundtrack in my head is like Ariane and Leonard Cohen. This is why I associate, you know, magic or Emma Frost or whatever with with what I do. So those are all, I believe, on eight tracks, and we will link to them in the as mentioned. Um, there are a bunch of them. And we also got in touch actually with Elle to ask ask what her answers would be as far as as, as Lila and Dazzler. And she says... Drawing from primarily contemporary artists, classic Dazzler is, to me, basically 1989-era Taylor Swift, as much as a lot of comics fans may not want to hear it. Getting more indie, though, um, Genevieve and Kaiza both have sounds I could easily imagine for Dazzler. My ideal Lila Cheney is basically Dottie from Swimsuit Edition, alternately Chastity Belt Works, or Laura Jane Grace from Against Me. I have very little grounding in what any of those folks do, but I trust Elle implicitly when it comes to music recommendations, so that. 
Now, another part of the question was whether anybody's actually made music in the real world for those characters, and we actually did find one example of that a while back, which is that someone did a music video for a Dazzler song, and they did a music video starring Dazzler, and that's called The Sight of the Sound. It's credited to Alison Blair, and it does even feature a brief mulleted longshot cameo. Yeah, we'll link to that as well, and I'll also add that Lila Cheney, her backup band, is an actual band called Cats Laughing, which you can find. They played their first reunion show fairly recently. They are fantastic. We highly recommend looking them up while there is no real world live latinos associated with them they're a really really solid band yeah so that covers the questions and next we have some thanks we will remind you um we have a number of patreon levels we are a listener supported podcast and some of those include thanks from a variety of of fictional characters including supervillains and angry claremontian narrators in that spirit i will turn things over to the one and only victor von doom doom is cursed to live in a world of imbeciles and fools My nation of Latveria is a bastion of civility amid humanity's senseless masses. One, though, has earned my respect. The woman called Katrina. Perhaps Doom shall not stand alone after all. Perhaps, together, we shall at last crush that fool Richards. I'm sort of surprised that you didn't pull in Battleworld. Yeah, well, you know, crushing Richards is really the most important thing regardless of worlds. For those of you not following the current Secret Wars stuff, Doom is currently god-king of the entire universe. It's great. It's pretty great. We love Doctor Doom so much. So, we are, I believe, out of time. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art interviews, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free because of listeners like Katrina and our other Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be back with the New Mutants as Mirage fights Death himself, Wolfsbane's dad is totally the worst, and Cannonball brings a rock star home to meet his parents. See you then. (laughs) 